Hi there, it's David, the incomprehensible one from the Pure Pre podcast. I was just giving you a shout to let you know that this, the first episode of the Big Egg Podcasting Universe, was recorded a long time ago, back in a happier, more utopian world where Party Fissel won the championship and the world was not a hellscape. This is the first of about five or six episodes we recorded back in about February time. So obviously, bear that in mind when you're listening, relax, and remember a time we could go to the pub. Cheers. And welcome to episode one of Big Egg Podcasting Universe, the new podcast presented by the Brains Trust here at the Purple Podcast. My name is George Thompson, and with me I have David Forrest and Sarah Parkin. How are you both? A up, yeah, I think uh, I think we're good. Excited to be here. A up, by it. <laughs> it begins. That is Yorkshire a hate crime. Tea. <laughs> Uh, now you know how we feel every time anyone does a Scottish accent. <laughs> uh, you, you should you should hear the one I've done at the end of uh, at the end of the, uh, the last recording of the main podcast. I am not looking yes. forward to this. Uh, well, no, 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 no one is looking forward to our last recording. Um, <laughs> well, hopefully you will be looking forward to this one. So, what is Big Big Egg Podcasting Universe? You may ask. Well, the idea is that we are going to go through the Big Egg Wrestling Universe show from November 1994, and uh, what we're going to do is do a really deep dive into this incredibly momentous show in the history of women's wrestling in Japan, the first women's wrestling show to take place at the Tokyo Dome Baseball Stadium. We're going to each episode zero in on a particular aspect of this show because the show wasn't just intended as a very good wrestling show although it does succeed in being that it was intended as a celebration of women's wrestling and indeed uh, female athletes in many combat sports so you'll see wrestlers not just from uh, all japan women's wrestling the home promotion but also various other women's wrestling promotions there are minis wrestlers there are there is amateur grappling martial arts contests and there's even a men's match on there uh, couldn't uh, couldn't bloody resist could they so really what we're going to do in every episode 
episodes is just zero in on an aspect of this show and really talk about what Big Egg Wrestling Universe means in terms of that aspect and how it relates to the wider world of Japanese women's wrestling. Speaking of which, what we're going to do before we really kick off talking a bit about the show is just give a little bit of background context. If you've listened to episode 11 of the Pur Pur podcast, Sarah is a dab hand at doing the potted history of Japanese women's wrestling by now. So what we're really going to do is um, she's going to tell us how we got to this point basically and how from the germination of women's wrestling in Japan we arrived at the point where it was in a place where we could do a big egg wrestling universe whatever that may mean so uh, Sarah would you like to uh, take it away? So I've been really excited to do something like this for such a long time because number one there is not generally speaking certainly from what I'm aware of in terms of English language there is not enough out there of people who want to talk about Joshi wrestling, which is a Japanese women's wrestling. Certainly not retrospectively as well. So I know there's there's a content out there for things like uh, Stardom, which everybody uh, everybody loves. Um, but you've got all sorts of other Joshi promotions as well. Um, and really, there's there's such a rich and you know I don't want to sound all WWE Hall of Fame here, but storied history um, of this. Of this particular moment in time and what brought us to where Joshi is now, that frankly is worth celebrating, and I think it's also something that means quite a lot to to me personally. And I, I, I don't know, do you guys kind of feel similarly? Or uh, yeah, I do. I mean, just uh, I mean, perhaps at this point, just to talk about how Sarah and I started watching uh, Joshi, which again I think we've talked about on the Pro Pro podcast, but it does bear repeating. Um, I can't remember the year, but we've been watching, uh, basically the wrestling we watched together at that point was WWE, and pretty much only WWE, and the women's division at the time was in a really, really shit place. I mean, for whatever you may say about it now, and the fact they could be doing so much more with the female performers that they have, my God, it used to be so, so much worse. Oh, it was and awful. It was really bad, and there was a particular episode so well I think there was like one women's match and it was like a minute long it may, it may even have been the show which the Give Divas a Chance hashtag um, started and uh, Sarah really was just said you know I'm, I'm just so despondent about the fact that they're not giving the uh, the women on their roster a chance and I basically because we didn't have any hope of it changing anytime soon I, I said well I, I heard that uh, women's wrestling in Japan uh, is very good and has been very good for quite a long time so you know what let me just uh, do a little bit of uh, research see what matches are good and we can start watching some of them I think the first one we ever watched was the uh, cage match between Akira Hokuto and Bull Nakano which is just a 12 minute uh, cataclysm of horrendous violence and ridiculous high spots and from then on we were uh, kind of hooked on it really so um, I don't know D- David what's the I-, I know actually the first Japanese match you ever watched was a women's match and indeed I think both of the performers in this match are on this show I believe so yeah and yes the first one I ever watched was uh, Combat Toyota versus Nagumi Kudo which is a very mean match it's an exploding barbed wire death match um, and it's it's wonderful it's just utterly wonderful and it's not it's not um, an exploding barbed wire death match in the sense that, you know, it's going to make Sarah, like, curl into a ball and squirm because it's so horrifically violent or stuff like that. It is horrifically violent, but it's also done in a, done in a way whereby th- there's some really good te- uh, really good wrestling behind it as well, and it's all about wringing out the emotion of the match and making you want to squirm and 
curl up into a ball because you're so scared about what's going to happen for these people and stuff yeah. like that. And that's kind of what the, the, the match plays yeah, on. Yeah, it's an, it's an incredible match. And I would also just like to throw in a bit of a note of defence for people who don't know. When David says the kind of death match that would make Sarah curl up and cry in a ball, um, he's, not just say, he, he's not saying that based on any sort of wild assumptions. I have actually been known to do this during death matches. He's not saying, oh, you know, poor, weak and feeble woman can't take it. But in this case, I really cannot take it. Like, I cannot cope with most Big Japan. <laughs> Oh no, genuinely, like, me and other people have nominated, like, Big Japan and Freedoms for our Match of the Year poll, and Sarah's just like, can you not? Can you just not? It's horrible. Like, it just upsets me, because then I have to watch it to vote, and it's not fair. <laughs> and you love to see it. <laughs> but that was my um, introduction. To be honest, I spiralled off in a different way, where instead of getting really into Joshi from that at the time, I got really into FMW from that, um, as a, a, and then came back to Joshi later on. I think I've mentioned this before, but when I first got into Japanese wrestling, it was I really liked, like I, I I was really into all those gruesome death matches that make Sarah you know physically ill, and um, that was the sort of stuff I was I was really into, sort of like from the early two thousand stuff, like you know the sort of stuff that people would buy tapes based on, you know, like the crocodile death match and the piranha death match stuff like that, and then. From that, well, like you would get compilations or stuff like that, or you would see stuff on YouTube and recommendations and stuff like that, and you would see, or go into DVD VR, for example, and then they would go, like, you know, they talk about All Japan, they talk about Masawa and Kawada and 1694, and then, you know, uh, the King's Road, and then I re- really into like, Masawa and Kawada and stuff like that, and then kind of branched out where to the point where I was like, oh, Jushin Liger, I remember him from WCW, Ultimo Dragon. And then kind of got into the juniors and stuff like that. And then it was a case of, by that point, the, the bug, you, you kind of got the bug in the sense that you go, wow, I've, I found a new thing about Japanese wrestling. What's the next new thing that I'm going to find? So you would go, oh, here's Todd Yumon, or here's, you know, Michinoku Pro or whatever. And then you it would kind of just blossom with that. And then eventually I got, uh, you know, down, down the, the garden path and I went uh, got to Joshi. I remember i believe it was ivp videos or one of those uh, dvd sites they posted like uh, a big it was called joshi for dummies and they had like a six disc compilation of of like joshi for dummies so like this is what you should watch if you want to get into joshi this is all the bangers you had your, your big 80s matches stuff from this event stuff from you know the dream slams and stuff like that that you know it was a good starting off point because you were like right well this is the absolute cream of the crop you pick who you like, you know, Her Royal Highness Bill Nakano. Correct, you know, correct obviously, title. You love her and you're like, I want, yep, you want to watch more Bill Nakano and you find more Bill Nakano and then you find someone else who's facing Bill Nakano and you just kind of, it just grows exponentially until you're, you know, you, you've lost your life in it, <laughs> <laughs> so to speak. Like, yeah, it's just, um, but yeah, that was a Joshi for dummies. I, 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 I struggle to remember who it was, but... Um, whoever it was, thank you so much because I'd have been totally, I'm totally clueless about Japanese women's wrestling. Um, before then, I mean, as you said, the wrestling, the women's wrestling, you know, at, at that time, you know, when we were getting back into wrestling, I mean, it's 2010. It was all you know, fulfill your fantasy battle royals and lumberjell matches and bollocks like that. And like, yeah, it's just you know, it, it was I had no clue about it, and I just went and you know, went and found this list, and that that was me from then on. Yeah, and I think so. We should preface this by saying, um, 
if you started out with this as being a who is it who is this for? I can't remember who who we're doing this for. And I'd like to specify that whilst ultimately I'm mostly just doing this because I like the sound of my own voice. Um, you know what? If you're here because you don't know anything about Japanese women's wrestling and you want to find out more about it, it's for you. Um, but if you want to, if you have decided that you're a lifelong devotee of Joshi and you just want to hear a bunch of strange people talking about how much they love Bolmakana. You know, we're also here for that. This is this is really for me this is Big Egg represents a moment in time, I think, and it's a really it's a significant part of history for anyone who loves wrestling of any stripe whatsoever. Um and with that in mind, we're not gonna go through this match by match because there's twenty-four of them. And honestly, life's too short, but it gives us a lot of opportunities to talk about like the wider sort of context of Joshi wrestling and how we got to this point and how it relates into sort of wrestling as a whole. Um, but yeah, I, I I love I love wrestling. I'm not convinced that I can get an entire episode out of a kickboxing match because uh, that's just not my thing. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, about we're going to try. The challenge accepted. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we we talked about if we we could do an entire episode about Akabono versus Bob Sapp easy. So. Um... <laughs> One thing I wanted, just a, a quirky thing that I, I wanted to mention, just about you know how I got really into Joshi. I always, uh, you know, keen Puro pre podcast listeners will know that um, yeah, at the end of every episode, I plug uh, my like awful, awful experiment in music, and um, we, I, I have a, a, a how me and Daniel met is that I had a project called Abdullah Kobayashi, and um, one of the albums was a pun. Um, it was basically, um, I had 13 songs and I needed a, I needed a, a title. And um, uh, the, the noise artist Merzbo has a series of albums called 13 Japanese Birds. So every album is about a different bird from Japan. So I had a Joshi wrestling album called 13 Japanese Birds and every, every song was named after um, a, Joshi, a Joshi wrestler, so it's one like Bill Nakano, Tugusa Nagaya, stuff like that. Um, and I thought it's just it's probably the best one I've ever made. But, you know. I mean, we, we've made a lot on the and podcast. And no one gets it because, yeah, well, this is it. No one gets it because I, either they know the Merzbo album or they know, you know, that it's 13 Japanese women wrestlers, but they don't know both of them. So the pun is just completely lost in people. And I'm like, it's a good pun. Yeah, that... And somebody once commented that it was a good pun, and I was like, well, that's, that's me. That's, um, I, I've, I've succeeded. Someone else. The one man Venn diagram. That, I just want to say that if Crane Yu was not one of the women actually mentioned on that, I will be sorely disappointed. <laughs> 13 more Japanese birds coming yeah, soon. Including the ones who have actual birds in their names, like Eagle So I. Yeah. 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 Um, oh, there was a Condor someone as well whose uh, name I've completely... Condor Saito. Condor Saito, that's it. Condor Saito, yeah. Sister brother. I'm going to do that then. Um, and I'm quite glad I never got to um, do one on my favourite Joshi wrestler because I didn't know her at the time. Um, Grizzly Iwamoto, um, who I love, even though I've seen about four matches of her. Yeah, I mean, if your name is Grizzly, there's a, the, the bar for you to impress people is lower because your name is Grizzly and that's that's done the work for you. Bill Nakano's like, tag partner. No. Can you think of a, be- a better tag team name than Bill Nakano and Grizzly Iwamoto? That's such a good good tag combination. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about... Uh, I'm not sure that um, Grizzly is actually on this show, but Bill Nakano is going to come no. up a lot later on. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to save that, really, because yeah. I am going yeah. to talk about her at length on a later episode. And uh, honestly, you guys are just going to have to sit there and listen to me. 
Absolutely fine. I mean, we we do, we talk about Bornicano enough on the uh, on the the main podcast, even and perhaps especially when she's not the subject of what we're actually meant to be talking about. So, uh. golfing <laughs> is Bornicano. So, Never let a pass catch. <laughs> So, um, yeah, as far as uh, just before we uh, go on to talk about the main show, um, uh, so would you like to uh, sort of, yeah, as, as uh, uh, intimated before, would you like to just give us the sort of potted history of, uh, of Joshi up until the time of Big Egg? Sort of. How big's the pot? Um, so, <laughs> it's, it's, a, been... it's a cauldron more than anything. Yeah, yeah. I would say that you... you... You, you could cook a really good chunky soup in the pot of this potted history. <laughs> Think of it in those terms. Um, okay, so we are we are getting to Japan, I promise you, but um, unfortunately we have to start back in good old USA. Um, so we're going back to 1954, um, and I think a lot of people don't necessarily realise just how old women's wrestling in particular is. But I mean, it comes back out of the you know the carnival tradition and the sideshow tradition that goes back you know at least into the 19th century as far as we know um, but I'm I'm picking this up um, kind of in 1954 at um, what's quite a turning point in um, well in Japanese women's history uh, specifically but actually starts with a woman called Mildred Burke whose name you are going to hear mentioned a lot because she's a legend um, so Mildred Burke has been through the ringer in the previous couple of years. She has had a nasty divorce from her husband, who was also her manager and trainer, um, infamous historical scumbag Billy Wolf. Um, as a result of their divorce, and there were a lot of nasty business dealings, there's been... I mean, at one point, he's just roundly breaking their divorce settlement and screwing her out of work and screwing her out of income. And essentially, the wrestling boys club that constitutes the National Wrestling Wrestling Alliance, the NWA, um, doesn't lift a finger because women are not permitted. At one point, there is a meeting where her entire livelihood is being uh, discussed um, and women aren't allowed in the boardroom. So she has to sit outside whilst they, dis- whilst they discuss her entire livelihood and her scumbag ex-husband gets to sit in the room room and present his side of the story so she's been through the ringer at this point and the upshot of it is that she's really struggling to find bookings in the u.s she realizes that she does have some uh, female talent who've stayed with her and been loyal to her as a manager um but the downside is that she would then be the agent that gets her talent booked on other shows and she can't get them any work either so she has um both herself and she has this kind of coterie of uh, younger than her usually so young young women and she can't get work for any of them so she turns to some of her contacts in hawaii who help her organize a a tour of japan this means that essentially men's and women's wrestling in japan kind of start to become a thing about the same time but there's obviously quite a bit of interest around it at the time because these hawaiian agents managed to land the financial backing of the sankei shinbun newspaper group um this is a nice little media partnership of the type that lots of people probably pay the telegraph thousands for today because what it means is that they get quite a lot of press coverage because it's very much in this newspaper's interest to make this a financial success so it's heavily promoted there's lots of press coverage and there's probably an element of that kind of carnival-esque Ooh, you know um you know women who might not be wearing very much i, I expect that that would have all been kind of quite the the exotic charm of that kind of event um but 
essentially, whatever they did to promote it, it worked because there were crowds waiting for these women when they got off the plane in 1954. It's absolutely spectacular. They're treated like... It's a a proto-Beatlemania, I suppose. Um, And you get... You get shows mostly taking place on US airbases, but they're popular enough that they start getting picked up by Nippon TV. Um, And women's wrestling pretty much continually, it doesn't really kick off for sort of a while later, but you will notice that throughout this, there's a constant interest in women's wrestling, which is enough to mean that there's a a 40-year stretch at one point, which is sort of uninterrupted women's wrestling appearing on Japanese TV. Um, so after that toss in 1954, you've got your Nippon TV has picked that up. It's been really successful, and a bandwagon appears, which people then start jumping on. So shows start springing up everywhere, all across Japan. And at one point, somebody realizes—we're not entirely sure who—that this is becoming unmanageable, and the All Japan Women's Pro Wrestling Organization is established to try and regulate it. The idea, I think, is really that they're learning from the example being set by the NWA. Similar to the NWA, it's a bit rubbish, but in a slightly different way. In that essentially, it can't regulate anything. You've just got lots of shows happening all over the place, and the overall effect is that there's not a lot of coordination, and it's not really a scene that really starts to come into its own. It's very much there, but it's not necessarily controlled in the way that something like the NWA actually was. And that kind of continues for just over a decade. And the next important date, so for those of you who are taking notes at home, you scribble this one down. This is like BBC Bankside. Yes. This, exa- this is exactly it. And there will be an exam at the end of this series, and I will be marking it personally. So Your standard grade Joshi depends <laughs> on it. You don't get standard grades down south. You don't get standard grades up here, to be fair, anymore. It shows how old I am, but yeah, your standard grade Joshi. Right, if that means that anybody needs me to spell out the following name so that you can write it down later on, do let me know. Um, But the important name that I'm about to write down is Takashi Matsunaga. I'll give you a moment to just make some notes. So the Matsunaga brothers, um, are there's four brothers who are ex-wrestlers, but Takashi is the one who really takes this on as his passion. Um, They are really keen on developing this business opportunity that's there for the taking and they formed the All Japan Women's Pro Wrestling Corporation. That is also important. Um, Really to sort of help them catapult this new promotion into the stratosphere, they reach out to a Vincent J. McMahon, whom I believe got some kind of award for excellence named after him a little bit later on in sort of like 2017 or something like that. Yeah, none of his children did anything notable in wrestling. Absolutely not. Um, At the time, however, he was becoming one of the biggest empresarios, certainly on the east coast of the US, and he worked with Takashi Matsunaga to arrange a tour using the girls of somebody whose name we are not going to mention too often, the Fabulous Moolah. The redacted Battle Royal. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. She of the Battle Royal fame. So here's the thing. The Fabulous Moolah gets a lot of credit for the tour that she sent to Japan in 1968. Most of that is frankly unmerited. There are, however, some positive things that, that she did. Um... Her tour was not as financially successful as any of the tours that Mildred Burke made to Japan, but one of the things that she did do was help to create one of their one of the first 
sort of homegrown Japanese stars because on her way out there she dropped the belt um, her championship at the start of the tour to Yukiko Tomoe and eventually she regained it at the end which you know was not not an uncommon practice for American wrestlers to you know go over there create a bit of drama on the tour by you know dropping the belt and winning it back and then you go home and no one's any the wiser um, but what that served to do for them is to create this real first star that means that eventually you can then start, you know, bringing other Japanese women into the fold as well and elevating them. So Yukiko Tomoe, again, write that one down, be on the test later on, um, becomes the first in what's an increasing cycle over the next few years where you generally have your sort of happy, smiley, sort of homegrown Japanese baby face and you settle into a pattern where sort of... Um, wrestlers usually from the states would go over and play the heel and they would kind of have a significant role which is not far away from what's happening in sort of the uh, the, the the men's sport at the time as well um, but the Matsunaga brothers are establishing this training school where they are known for essentially being really really tough um, quite I mean, they're training workhorses, I think is probably the best way to phrase it, even though, you know, the, the definition of a workhorse would have been quite different in the 60s compared to what we're used to today. Um, their idea is that really they are training people to wrestle and at the same time, there's a lot of physical conditioning. There's a lot of really strict, a lot of really strict rules that people are expected to abide by. But. I mean, even as far as the 1980s or the late 1970s, you have American wrestlers going over to train for a while in the in the All Japan Women's Dojo, and saying that you know they thought they could, they thought they knew their way around a wrestling ring, and then they got there and the training in Japan sort of started where their training in the US had ended. But it's really sort of high level stuff. And the Fuji Network starts televising AJW events in the late 60s, so that's really the start of this kind of uninterrupted sort of. 40-year binge, I suppose, of endless, sort of pretty much continual Joshi appearing on on national TV screens, and at various points the ratings got absolutely huge. Um, so Moolah is a bit of a scumbag whom I don't want to talk about in a lot of detail, but that's okay because by the end of 1968 she has gone back to Vince McMahon, and Takashi Matsunaga goes straight back to Mildred Burke um, because Burke is still really struggling in the US. That the, the stranglehold that Billy Wolf and his friends in the NWA had over the industry was so severe that even you know, 15 years after the situation that she was that she was leaving the first time she went to Japan, she's still struggling to get work. She's essentially sort of making a living selling tapes of her own matches from sort of 20 years previously. Um, and she's still she's still training. She still has a company on the west coast of America. They're based in Reseda, which later on became known for PWG. Very different style. <laughs> I know which one I prefer. I, I can I can I bet that like Mildred Burke's homemade like video cassettes of her own matches will still arrive prompter than PWG DVDs. <laughs> <laughs> that would not surprise me. <laughs> she had her own Battle of Los Angeles, and it came out before the 2017 one on DVD. <laughs> It was, it's nice to know that the NW have changed their act up and are no longer <laughs> Yeah, nothing underwater is, is currently happening in NWA or has done in the last 12 months. Matsunaga goes straight back to Mildred Burke to arrange another tour for her girls. And then in the late 60s, um, we really start to see kind of the preparations for another one for, for another tour with Mildred Girls specifically. So in 1970, Mildred's um, Mildred's girls come back to Japan and her champion at the time is Marie Venoni, who then drops the belt to Aiko Kyo, the homegrown babyface star. 
the most important thing that comes out of this, although it's obviously a very popular and financially successful tour, is that that belt then essentially becomes the urtext for Japanese wrestling accomplishment. Because that belt is the one that Mildred Burke carried throughout all of her title, uh, all of her title defences, all of her reign. She had given it to Marie Venoni and eventually she drops that belt. It finds its way into Japanese wrestling itself and almost mythical status is endowed on the red belt. Specifically, this is what's known. And actually, when we get to Big Egg later on, it's Mildred Burke's belt, which is still being competed for. Yeah, the uh, WWWA title. It's um, I was going to say its full name. That's not its full name. It's an abbreviation, but uh, I can't quite remember what it stands for. But uh, that was the that was the sort of start at the time, really, um, that um, in order to get a belt over, it was generally considered that be more prestigious if a Japanese wrestler had won an American belt. So you saw it back in the Rikidozan age with the NWA international title, which he won off of Luthez. And when Antonio Inoki's fledgling New Japan promotion a couple of years after this wanted to establish a promotion he didn't just create his own he basically bought the belt off the nwf which was a bankrupt territory and he won the belt off their champion and then that was the top belt so this is very much in keeping with the start of the time even nowadays like you look at the sort of the proliferation of new japan of like western titles i mean you look at the retro title the roh title the nwa title they have all been competed for in the last say five mm. years in new japan and they, they gently clearly see some stock in using, you know, Western titles and, you know, having them on their shows. They clearly feel that it's got something to it. They did have the IPW UK uh, women's title defending Stardom, yeah. the ICW women. Uh, Jungle Kiona challenge for that. I would have really loved to have seen her in the garage, alas. Yeah. <laughs> Twas not to be. Get her on the bookie. <laughs> oh, I bet Jungle Kiona would absolutely love a bit of the bookie. She would, she would destroy a little bit of the bookie. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, upon which cheerful note, uh, I'm, I'm just going to nip us back to the 1970s. And I think the red belt is actually really important when you talk about people like Jungle Kiona, because there's a reason why the top title in stardom is still red. It's a direct reference back to this belt and it, to the this is the significance that this has. And red is the company, it is the colour that you see a lot of the aces of Japanese women's promotions wearing. It's obviously, it's a, it's quite a you know, serendipitous colour for them anyway, but it's a but I really do see there's a lineage of of belts and even though the last WWE champion no longer holds the title, um, you know, that it's absolutely a part of the tradition that these the you know people like Io Shirai and Mayu Iwatani have all been proud holders of the red belt in the knowledge that this is where it originally came from. Do we know uh, I was just uh, just uh, uh, sheer interest do you know what happened to the belts? I have absolutely no idea. I know that Nanai Takahashi was the last woman to hold it. That was in about, I think, 2006 when AJW finally finally closed its doors. She I, was, yeah. I, th- I swear there's been, like, uh, it's been, like, on display somewhere um, mm-hmm. relatively recently. I know there was an exhibit of, like, old, um, like, the original Triple Crown belts in uh, yeah. in uh, in All Japan. Um, but um, I don't know if Takahashi still owns it. I mean, I, I bloody would if I was her. Like, uh, <laughs> oh, keep I'd that as a, as a memento. Yeah. I love the idea Get you just... a dog on it. <laughs> For fuck's sake. I love the idea that you could just like walk in and there's a secret shrine in like the back of Nanai Takahashi's house and she's got like a she's got like a Jaguarikota shrine and you know Bulnakana effigy and things like that and she's just got this like red belt that's hanging in the center of it and she's got this bizarre this entire bizarre closet that's just devoted to AJW past. It's yeah, just along from yeah. the rookie to- rookie torture dungeon. <laughs> 
Yeah, you have to put a pan underneath it to catch all the dripping prestige. <laughs> <laughs> so, from the dripping prestige of the red belt, um, proceeds a, a lineage of. I get really bored with other people talking about you know history being a procession of great men, but there is absolutely a lineage of great women that carry the AJW sort of mantle throughout the next sort of 34 years. Um, we start to move away from you know the American heel Japanese face dynamic, and we actually start getting homegrown faces and heels, and we actually start seeing um, titles that are actually being passed around between Japanese performers as well. Um, but the formula that emerges as that happens is quite clear and it very much continues for at least the next 10 years so you it's it it relies quite heavily on stereotypes and i want to be careful that these are not the only ways that human beings can be and that they're not the only ways that women can be but there are very much some archetypal characters that people were expected to be so essentially you had younger sort of quite conventionally pretty quite physically slim and smaller baby faces taking on um, heels who were traditionally a little bit older and a bit bigger and a bit more physically imposing. So that becomes the classic formula for AJW matches and in the 80s we are going to see the real monster heels that increasingly start to dominate the the top of the division. Um, Again, our Lord and Saviour Bull Nakano is going to come up during that conversation. Um, But that formula works because it gives people really obvious role models and it actually really resonates with young women. So thousands of girls are being inspired to apply and become wrestlers and they very much want to be kind of those traditional sort of pretty baby faces. Um, They're not always told that that's where they fit and I think one of the things that will come up in some of our later episodes is what happens to people when they get told that they can't be the they can't be the good girls and they're going to have to play up to the role of heels. Um, But you're also being forced into that image. Even if you're a heel, the same rules are going to apply. So I mentioned that the Matsunaga brothers uh, have insisted on quite a tough training regime and a quite restrictive set of rules. But essentially it boils down to no booze, no boys and no smoking. Um, I appreciate that that sounds like a really boring life, but you're that busy training that you don't really notice. So the training is extremely advanced, but it does come with this sort of set of strictures and it can really come back to bite on on women. To be honest, even today, there are certain things where you know that if the story gets out about a particular wrestler, it's going to negatively impact their careers. Um, But that would have been unthinkable in the 70s and, and 80s, you know, there are careers that could have been uh, that could have been completely ended by that. I think as well you have to take it into consideration. And it's just me just spiraling off into conjecture here, really. But I think those sort of things, like you know, no drinking, no smoking, no no boys, those are very formative things of your your teenagehood. So a lot of these people will have been like fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, whatever, when they have um, applied to be an ADW wrestler, for example, a young lion, and like. Certainly, this may just be you know our culture in Britain, but you know you you know what it's like where um you know everyone's you know trying trying fags outside the back of the uh, the schoolyard and you know they're all you know talking about you know boys boys or girls who fancy stuff and kind of those sort of things and for um you know like going to parties and like uh, drinking and socialising and things like that. So th- those are very formative experiences that you know that that do shape the way that you, you, you look at life and, and the way that you, you turn out in your sort of older age. So 
there must have been very, very life-changing in a way, in the sense that they're not having the same experiences as maybe, say, their peers, who are mm. having all these sort of illicit, you know, parties. Illicit makes it sound far more seedy than it is, but you know what I mean, like... Yeah, um, think... And it's just a case of, with that, that obviously has an effect on them going into, into later life. You know, they're not going to have the same experiences as... Is that other people? I think it's the same principle as with sort of child child actors and other ty- and other types of child stars. Is you know you're not you're not necessarily growing up in the same way as the other kids, but it, it works. And there are like there are thousands of girls. There's pretty much a continual sort of churn of people getting straight in there. So eventually, people start to realise that you can be uh, you can be bigger than just the wrestling, and we start getting into the really becoming sort of popular cultural icons. And um, so. And eventually lots of women are being brought into wrestling by as much by the pop culture as by the idea of the of the sport. I was going to bring up the the example, and this will be one of many copious football examples, but um, I was listening to a podcast about Francesco Totti. Are you aware of Francesco Totti, Sarah? Do you know who he is? No, humor me. So basically Francesco Totti is he's the ultimate one club player. He lived he grew up in Rome. He lived in Rome. He played for Roma his entire career. He never wanted to leave. He turned down offers from Real Madrid and stuff like that because he loved Roma and supported Roma. And then they had a, a bit of a disagreement and he retired. He didn't go to another club. He, he just retired. But Roma were like, um, you know, we'll, we'll find some sort of position for you in the club. And the people doing the podcast, um, the, it's the... It's the uh, the totally the the football weekly people you know like James Richardson and oh yeah, yeah. Galazzo is called yeah yeah Galazzo yeah, yeah and they were talking about it saying well you know what do you do, what what does Francesco Totti do after after like you know he's not a football player anymore because Francesco Totti literally went to Roma when he was fifteen has lived entire his entire life in the city he's always been the 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 the, the center of attention. He, people know him like I mean they were saying about how his wife you know is kind of miserable because every time she meets someone it's never your ex it's oh you're married to Totti and he's kind of like he's such a he's such a universal per- person and they're like what do you do with him after football like you like oh you could put him in like the business team or whatever but he knows <laughs> nothing about business he literally spent his entire life playing football and training and not learning didn't you know didn't go to school uh, didn't go to university or college or do anything like that because he was training with Roma and he became this player and then he's kind of got this problem afterwards where he's like well what I don't have any any sort of what practical life skills or you know experiences other people have because he can't be a coach because everyone he's going to look at they're never going to be totty. You know, he's, he's, he's looking yeah. at it going, oh, well, you can do that, 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 and that. Well, he can, but they can. And it's like, it's, it's very tough for, for people like that afterwards to kind of carve out a, a living and like have the same, have, a, have, a, have a normal life, so to speak. I yeah. went off on a tangent, but you know what I mean. No, but I, I completely see what you mean because the same question of, well, what do you do after your career is over is going to crop up a lot with AJW talent, actually, because we often find that... I, I talked about what the turnover was like at the time and the fact that you have thousands of people applying all the time. In the spirit of keeping things fresh, AJW introduces a mandatory retirement age of 26. 26. 
I'm 30 this year. I'm four years retired. How is anybody going to manage that? Like, what do you do when you're I still... I in... wish I was four years retired. <laughs> <laughs> well, me too. But what do you do when you come out of your... When you come out of the only career that you've ever known? You started training in some cases when you're 13 or 14. You're 26 and then someone tells you that even though you might be in good shape and you might still be incredibly popular, what happens? Like, what happens next? So, and that's... I really want to come back to that in some future episodes because essentially lots of the women that I'm about to talk about sort of over the next 10 years just go, fuck that. I'm going to go and do my and set up my own company where I'm not going to have anyone telling me when to retire. So, and some of them are still wrestling today when arguably they should have retired. (laughs) So that's a, but that's a massive part of this, that this culture around AJW is the fact that they are young women and they know that their careers are going to be short. Um, But I want to go back to what I was saying about the, the popular culture angle of this, because round about the mid-1970s, um, we come across um, Match Fumiaki, who is a 15-year-old girl who wins a TV talent show. So she's essentially winning the 1970s Japanese X Factor, um, gets all of this attention. And the first thing she does straight afterwards is she turns up at AJW and just enrolls in the dojo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally, she's just like... All right, guys, this is what I'm going to do now, it turns out. So, AJW. Imagine if Alexandra Burke had done that. I was going to say Steve Brookstein. Well, that was my reference. I mean, very different approaches there, bearing in mind that Alexandra Burke at least ended up in Sister Act in the West End. So, you know, she found. Steve Brookstein ended up in Pizza Express. (laughs) Jesus. He did actually do that. That was. So, 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 Matt just rocks up at the AJW Jojo and. The top brass look at this and go, right, well, we may as well give her a pop song to perform on the shows as well. So they record a, like this song for her that becomes a massive hit. And they put all of this behind her. She becomes this really big star for the company and then immediately retires a year later. So she, she segues this into a bit of an acting career later on when people go, hey, remember that person who was famous once? Like, you know, let's, let's rope her in. And she continues to have quite a public profile. But they invest all of this money in giving her a pop song and making her a pop star, and then she retires a year later, and they've left a lot of money on the table. So AJW's bright idea is, how about we do the same again, but we get a tag team so that if one of them retires, we've still got one. That's the whole logic behind the the, the invention of the introduction of Jackie Sato and Maki Ueda. Just to play up the idea that, you know, the thin, pretty baby faces are always going to run the company, they are literally called the beauty pair. (laughs) Now... They are, in a lot of ways, they're a cut above what Match Fumiaki was doing, probably because they'd had, you know, more than a year's training, which is more than Match was ever going to get a chance to. But they immediately become a, a real sensation, actually. So they they have a hip-hop song in 1976. In Ring, they're bringing out the goods, you know, they're having really good matches. But that's not really the thing that's drawing people in. What's drawing people in is the fact that they're doing musical performances on the shows and they're being seen elsewhere in TV and magazine covers. They're being, they're, they're all over the place. They get so popular that they get AJW's TV show moved to a primetime slot in 1977. And when I say primetime, I mean that at the beauty pair's peak, we're getting 15 million viewers a week. 
Now, 50, yeah, yeah, 15 million viewers. I mean, and in a day when, you know, everyone's watching everything on iPlayer and Netflix, 15 million is practically unheard of now. But just to give you an idea of how big we're talking, it's roughly what the NFL was doing at the time. Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. And it's actually more than Raw and Nitro were getting between them at the height of the Monday Night Wars. In the last half of the 1970s, there are only three wrestling shows that sell out Budokan Hall, which is generally sort of one of the one of the big, really prestigious um, wrestling venues in Tokyo. Those three matches are the infamous um, Antonio Inoki versus Muhammad Ali, not really wrestling. One of the worst things I've ever seen uh, shoot, shoot matches. It wasn't really <laughs> fighting either, to be fair. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So that, which, let's face it, was a bit of a freak show of its own, um, a strange sort of um, all Japan and New Japan sort of, you know, Frankenstein of a show or a Frankenstein's monster of a show before I get corrected. Um, so that you, you've got this big sort of interpromotional, like bringing out all of their big guns to, to try and fill Budokan um, on the men's side. The, the, the other match of those three is when... Jackie Sato and Maki Ueda eventually compete for the red belt. They eventually get split in 1977. They have a feud over the top title. It goes to a one-hour draw, by the way. Um, Jackie Sato wins um, on the basis of a judge's decision, and the judge is none other than Mildred Goddamn Burke. I thought you were going to say no, Sharky. (laughs) (laughs) Style control, damage and aggression. I mean, there's a lot of all of those things Mm -hmm. in Joshi at the time. But Mildred Burke being there at this time when she finally sees wrestling, you know, being given some of the respect it deserves and in kind of the in front of kind of the the higher the the higher sized audiences that she would have dearly loved and which she was certainly not getting at home at this point. That for me is a really significant moment in sort of the birth of uh, of women's wrestling, certainly in Japan. Um, So. Mildred Burke gets to award Jackie Sato the win, and a couple of years later, so they they are very much still the top of the promotion, but in 1979, while there's still probably quite a lot of money to be left on the table because they're young, they're healthy, and they're really popular, Maki Ueda reaches 26 and is retired by Jackie Sato. In 1981, Jackie Sato herself retires. This is, and this is just... It's a horrible combination of events because there's so much potential for them. And it goes to show that, you know, later on, mandatory retirement becomes a problem because there's no women to, because basically the AJW will start running out of women to replace the people who are retiring out. At this point, that's not necessarily true. But you do lose stars and then you have a gap where somebody's got to come in and, and replace them. And that does mean that business is going to take a dip in, in the meantime. As well as that, you look at the, the, the careers that they could have had if that was good. I mean, you look at like Tanahashi. Like, I bet he's, like, he's well in his like, late 30s now. And he's still pulling out bangers and matches, and he has, and he's been like, he main evented the, the fucking Tokyo Dome last year, and like, do you know what I mean? Like, the, your peak is not twenty six. At this point, we are recording this in early twenty twenty, and at this point, we are nearly getting ready for Big Egg's own retirement match because it's nearly twenty six years old now, guys. <laughs> that is really true. Like it's a you know we it's crazy to think that this is that this was how people protected uh, protected that constant churn of having y- young women in but there's always a dip like there was a logic behind keeping the retirement age when it was but you're constantly waiting for that new fresh face to come up and really take the mantle organically so there's always a gap where the the next the, the next big thing hasn't arrived yet so you get so Maki Ueda 
is retiring in 1979 and then you've got a little bit of a gap where Jackie Sato's kind of running the ship and there's some newer people coming up um, and then she eventually retires herself in 1981 um, having previously lost her title to a young uh, Jaguar Yakuta, um, whose name is going to come up quite a bit, but who was originally inspired to get into wrestling by Jackie Sato, finally manages to sort of rise up through the ranks, beat her, beat her sort of childhood hero to win the to win her first title, um, and Jackie Sato retires later on that year. So Jaguar Yakuta then really becomes the one of the top faces of the promotion for quite some time, um, but. She's never exactly quite the, the pop culture and the sort of, you know, magazine fronting sort of icon that her successors are going to become. Because in 1983, AJW finally gets together the next dream tag team that it really wants to build up when it forms the Crush Gals. These names, write them down for your GCSE bite size kids. Chikasa Nagaya, Lioness Asuka... Two of the most significant wrestlers of any gender of all time. They, By the time we get into 1985, when they are having absolutely massive matches at places like Budokan Hall, Chigsa Nagaya is losing her hair in a brutal sort of hair versus hair match against Matsumoto. That, that's the same week, those two matches. Yeah, so there are, yeah. there are some absolutely spectacular matches that happen in the mid-1980s. Um, in terms of the work rate, again... There are so many people coming through the, the AJW dojo that really the, the cream of the crop are the ones who are who are appearing on these shows. So you have the work rate is going up every couple of years because you've got your next sort of cohort of people coming through. So in comparison to what the beauty pair were doing in the ring, which was, you know, advanced for the mid to late 70s, the crush girls are doing top rope drop kicks, they're doing pile drivers, they're doing they're doing things that women haven't really done up until that point. And in the mid-1980s, we also see the trend that has continued ever since of Japanese women inventing all your favourite wrestling moves. So It's true, they did. Every single one. They really did. Pretty much all of them, right? When we did episodes 11 and 12, we reviewed uh, that Budokan show, which was main evented by... Jaguar Yukota versus Lioness Asuka with the semi-main of Chikis and Nagaya versus Devil Masami. And there were so many instances reviewing those two matches where we were like, Jesus Christ, people were doing that move in 1985. Mm. Um, I mean, you certainly weren't getting that stuff with uh, with uh, Hulk Hogan and King Kong Bundy in the Fed. Yeah. Do you well, know, remember when King Kong Bundy done the 720 cent on in the WrestleMania 2 main events? <laughs> You definitely weren't getting that with with a lot of the men because the men were already starting to fall into this kind of built like a brick shit house type of profile. And they're all over twenty six, so they're past it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, try telling that to Terry Funk. Um, so Chigusa Nagayo is much physically smaller than these people. You know, they in terms of what they probably can do in the ring, they're already you know streaks ahead in terms of mobility, flexibility, and all those kind of things. But also like. The energy of the matches is something that's so completely different. And similar to what we were saying before about the fact that there's this huge churn of young women coming in and getting interested in wrestling, whether they're getting interested or not, they're watching. Because you can listen back to any of those matches with the sound on from the mid-1980s and the crowd is overwhelmingly 
young women screaming at the slightest sign that Chickasaw or Asuka might be hurt. Like, it is absolutely overwhelming when you listen back to some of those things because you have an absolutely massive audience who are hugely invested and they're young women. And this is one of the things that I've always found really galling when people, you know, people describe wrestling as masculine fantasy. They see it as wish fulfillment. They see it as something that somehow inherently gendered male and it's bullshit and it always has been because the truth is if you give if you give people characters that they can see themselves in or where they see themselves represented people that they can relate to and invest in one way or another you'll find your audience and we know that in the 1980s you'll never tell me that there's something inherently male about male uh, about you know pro wrestling in any form as long as I've got evidence of things like this it was an absolutely female dominated young dominated you know lightning in a bottle moment which people like Dave Meltzer have said he was there for a Chigson and a guy match live and he said that he's never heard anything like it he's never felt anything like that I will say this a thing like if you are if you're into if you get into Joshi for the first time one of the one of the things that hits you is the audience is the crowd reaction because there is no other wrestling that has that audience so you, you kind of get taken aback by it because you're like well you're like, if you watch any WWE there is a it's very similar to like a boxing match or something you have a, a connection or you know you have a touch point in the sense of you, you understand how a wrestling audience is going to work and stuff like that you're attuned to the sound of a wrestling crowd you know you know what they sound like and stuff like that this sounds nothing like that. This sounds literally yeah. more like going to see the Spice Girls in the 90s or, you know, something like that, like that sort of level. Well, as somebody who did go and see the Spice Girls in September 1998, not long after Ginger Spice had left, and whose grandma came and picked me up from school, snuck me out a little bit early out of school to take me to Don Valley Stadium in Sheffield to watch the Spice Girls in uh, at that point in my life. Yeah. Can confirm, same energy. Like, absolutely. I'm so fucking jealous. I was a massive Spice Girls fan when I was younger. Still am, to be fair, but yeah. Oh, I'm not being funny. It it was incredible. The support acts included ABBA tribute band Beyond Again. Hell oh yeah. I know. It was that that was a moment. I can say that. Didn't they support Metallica? Was it Metallica or Iron Maiden? They they, they played Sonosphere one year with like Metallica or Iron Maiden or Slayer or something like that. And I'm like, that's the best fucking booking. I completely believe that. I can't tell you who, but I just imagine that, you know, I just completely imagine that Kirk Hammett is like a secret massive ABBA fan. I mean, the, the other point to be made about the crowd is there was kind of a stigma about uh, going to the Joshi amongst male fans. Mm. And partially it was arising from, well, you would assume latent misogyny in one, one point, but also the it was seen as more of a variety show um, by a lot of male fans because of the aforementioned sort of pop star aspect of it. The yeah. format of the weekly show, it was an hour-long show, and what they'd do, they'd have a pop song, and then they'd have a match, and then a pop song, and then another match, and then a pop song. So the music was almost the main thing, and the TV show still had that kind of format by the mid-'80s. It's just that the the standard of wrestling had improved so much, but the male fans basically had this uh, image of it. And to their eyes, okay, the TV show is still song and dance numbers, so the wrestling must still be not that good. And actually it had evolved so much. Yeah. And I think that part of that, that stigma doesn't really go away until until the 90s, basically. And it's, I suppose, the uh, quote-unquote respect that... Um, Joshi wrestling gets in the early 90s comes with a demographic shift where the audience becomes a bit less female dominated and becomes a bit more a, a bit more split in terms of gender but just to go back to what you're saying about the pop concerts and everything like 
this was they were rock stars like they were on magazine covers they were in tv they had multiple hit singles they had albums for days um we should totally find some Kush gals to, to play uh, at the end of this episode because or, or save it for a later episode. Those, those songs fucking rule, to be fair. Like, They're really catchy. Like, we, we, I think we... Massive 80s cop show vibes. We reviewed one at our uh, Purple Podcast Pick of the Purple Pops episode um, where we, and we did quite a lot of uh, AJW songs and uh, I'm pretty sure there was a Crush Gals one which was uh, which was uh, very, very good. I'm still gutted you didn't call that the Pudo Vision Song Contest because that would have been far <laughs> fucking better. <laughs> That's what happens when you like think of a pun that. after you release the episode. Exactly. And I also quite liked um, George having to see the Pure Pre podcast pick of the Pure of Pops um, all the time so I suppose I can't grumble that much. So I just want to go back to, to 1985 because as we've discussed you've got the huge Budokan Hall shows Pretty good year for the Crush Gals. Um, episodes 11 and 12 of the Puro Puri podcast. We go into this in quite a bit more detail. Um, but this is, this is, I've written in my notes, peak Chig. Like, that's what I've written. <laughs> fucking was, like, this is, this is absolutely, like, Chigasa is at the height of her powers. Um, but at the same time, so I mentioned that Jaguar Yakota has been around for a little while at this point. In a match with Lioness Asuka in 1985, Jaguar Yakota sustains a shoulder injury and she's forced to retire even, you know, regardless of age or anything. She's at, she's forced to retire at this point. So as the person who beat Jackie Sato to win a title and then handed the title over to Lioness Asuka, she's the fulcrum. Uh, she's the she's the the bridge in between those two in between those two different eras. She's now gone and the Crush Gals are still very much holding things down and they had been the faces of the company whilst Asuka and Chigasa had been tag champions. They'd had a lot of main events. Meanwhile, Jaguar Yakota is also the, the, the top champion holding the red belt for a lot of that time. With her gone, she, again, what do you do when your wrestling career ends and that's been all you've had for such a long time? What she actually does is she goes into the dojo and the fruits of her labours become the entirety of the 1990s, essentially, because she goes in and she starts training the greatest wrestlers of all time for for my money and for anybody's money um but meanwhile that's all happening in the background whilst the crush girls have continued with this kind of runaway runaway success and eventually take note wwe on the subject of when to split and feud a tag team um the crush girls do explode at the end of the 1980s so there is a title match in which Chigasa injures her shoulder and has to vacate the red belt. She's the champion. Um, the title is actually handed to Asuka because, well, she's gone. You were in a match with her at the time. Um, nobody else should carry this belt. It should be you. And Lioness Asuka refuses. And going back to these ideas of honour and decency and fairness and all of that kind of virtue that's associated with baby faces. She insists that that title isn't hers until she's earned it properly. So she vacates the belt. And so this happens in August 1988. The title actually stays vacant until January 1989, when Chigasa has recovered enough that they can do the match again and do it properly. In January 1989, Lioness Asuka finally wins the title clean. And it's a huge moment for, for both of them. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't last. And similar to the way that um, Jackie Sato and Maki Ueda both ended up really having careers cut short while they were still at the peak of their powers, later on in that year, Chikisa Nagayo retires in May 1989. Does she, like, though? Because... Well, um... no, no, no. Well, OK. Hasn't she wrestled this year? <laughs> I yeah. think she has, yes. Yes. Look, 
Retirement don't stick in Japan. We're coming to that. In the meantime, Chigusa nominally retires in May 1989. As far as anybody knows at the time, this is the end of the frigging world. Like, she is, uh, she, she is going at the point where she is still... They've had some of the biggest matches in the company's history in sort of the previous year. There's so much money to be made here. Can you imagine the man, Becky Lynch, being forced into retirement so soon after she's headlined WrestleMania? Like, it's a, it's a similar kind of principle. The retirement match... Uh, actually, the last person that um, Chikusa Nagaya faces in in this run of hers is Asuka, and Asuka retires her. That's the first women's wrestling show to draw a five hundred thousand dollar house. That's the money that they're making on the back of the uh, on the back of this feud. And then in November, six months later, in nineteen eighty nine, Lioness Asuka has to retire at the age of twenty six. It's mental, isn't it? It's, it's just mad. Oh, can you imagine? Can you imagine in the days when now it's just? I mean. I know you've retired, Goldberg, but come on, we've got a show. We've got a show that we need you on. No one can imagine. The Undertaker is twice the age of an AJW retiree right now. <laughs> oh, still fucking hell, yes. I was trying to do the math to see how um, if Terry Funk had hit three AJW uh, wrestlers. Yeah, I don't think he has. Can't be far off. So, and this is the thing. There's always a bit of a dip in business before the next big names come through. So. There is a little bit of a slump in 1990 after the crushed girls have gone. Things do start to recover quite quickly because actually, now that we've had the aforementioned Jaguar Yakota coming in and training the greatest wrestlers that you've ever seen, they, they start coming through in the early 90s. And Bull Nakano, who has actually been around since 1985 at this point, so 85 keeps coming up again as a real turning point year for these women, she holds the title during this period in the early 90s and she's a really, truly dominant heel really sort of distinctive look there's really she carries herself in a way that a lot of other women just haven't and she she is the, the monster at the top of the division Aja Kong and Bull Nakano are the people that hold everything together in sort of 1991 1992 um they have this brutal steel cage match at Wrestle Marimpiad 1992 that we mentioned earlier as being like one of the earliest matches that um that George and I had watched together for those who don't know, we live together. It's not just a thing that, you know, we've been simulcasting for years or anything like that. Twitch streaming before Twitch streaming was a thing. <laughs> Tape training. Oh, if only we could go back to a time before Twitch streaming was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would also be a time before podcasts. And the, the longer people spend listening to this episode, the more they may also wish for those days. Um, but I mean... And again, just to give you an idea of how important the, these matches were and... <laughs> How, how important this match was for me. We had the fortune to be at Wrestle Queendom, um, the first pro wrestling Eve Wrestle Queendom show um, a couple of years ago now. And um, Arja Kong versus Viper was one of the featured matches on that card. And it was the first time that Arja Kong had been to the UK. I went to the meet and greet and I could barely speak. And like, generally speaking, I'm pretty cool when I, when I speak to wrestlers. I mean, I've never been cool in my life, but I'm cool in the sense of like not getting overly fangirly around them. I could barely speak when I stood in front of Aja Kong. And somehow, I'm not sure how these words came out of my mouth, but they did. I somehow managed to garble out. Your cage match against Bull Nakano at WrestleMarimpiad 1992 is one of my favourite matches of all time. She looked so confused. <laughs> and she just went, oh, thank you. And she very clearly just didn't understand who this, like, random, like, nervous looking person was in front of her or why this meant a lot to them but i'm telling you that match is brutal and there's a level of there's a level of violence 
that actually gets reached in this bit of the early 90s when you have people like Bull Nakano and Aja Kong who comes out to the ring with a bin. <laughs> like, there's been a lot of blood, there's been a lot of kind of quite extreme sights in, in Joshi at, at that point, but something quite new is happening at this stage in, in the early 90s. Um, and the demographic is also starting to, to shift. There's The pop star thing isn't happening quite as much, and... I haven't really been able to get to grips with why, but I think there's a bit more of a commitment towards the idea of being wrestlers first. Um, and in some ways that does come back to bite them because the talent pipeline is going to start drying up sort of in the next couple of years at this point. But there's less, a, there's less of a focus on being pop stars. They become far more about serious wrestling. And as I was saying before, this is the point where you start seeing less female-dominated audiences, really. It become, there are still women there, and, you know, people like Chicks and Agayo and lifelong fans, and there are still people who are turning up to, to shows today that she has refused to retire from. Um, she's still, you know, she's still there. She still has this the eternal fandom. But by the time you get to sort of 91, 92, you're, you're going back to more what we traditionally expect from a wrestling crowd in that you're hearing a lot of male voices amongst, amongst the, the chants and the cheers. But what comes with that is that by 1992 and 1993, money is being made again. It's being made from a different group of people. It's not exclusively young women, but there's a shit ton of cash in wrestling at this point. So April the 2nd, 1993, they've had the first million dollar gate in women's wrestling. And they smashed that as well. It was Yokohama Arena and they got 16 and a half thousand people and made $1.2 million just on the gate. That's more than WrestleMania got in Las Vegas that year. And I know that no one's going to tell me by any stretch that that was a vintage WrestleMania. <laughs> That's the Giant Gonzalez one. It is the Giant Gonzalez one. I was hoping we could avoid that. <laughs> a fine year. <laughs> a fine vintage, 1993. Vintage, 1993. Um, oh, God, yeah. Hulk Hogan winning the title from Yokozuna in a squash. What a time to be alive. Yeah, but I mean... Don't get me wrong, this was a good Joshi show and a bad WrestleMania, but the, the point stands that you're making more money out of watching the out of watching Japanese women than you're getting out of The Undertaker and whoever main evented that year, which I can't think H- of. Hogan, of course it was Hogan. Probably Hogan, Hogan, Hogan yeah. and Bret Hart. Well, I mean, I would say as well, um, yeah, it was a bad WrestleMania and a good Joshi show, but you don't know it's going to be a bad WrestleMania before you go in. So no, that's I mean, true. Like, you know, it was a very underwhelming show but people are going to go in expecting the most they'll buy a ticket because they expect WrestleMania to be good they're not it wasn't a case of the show was bad so that's why the gate was in no because people bought tickets for WrestleMania because they wanted to see WrestleMania and regardless of what it was do you know what I mean true and what I would say is that the Yokohama Marina show on April the 2nd 1993 obviously delivers because a year later at the Yokohama Arena in 1994, they smash their own record and they get a $1.5 million gate. So the the money that's being made in in Joshi at this point is absolutely huge. And I think there's an element of really sensing a moment at this point. And the talent pipeline is gradually starting to dry up. And, you know, very soon after this, the mandatory retirement age is going to disappear. Manami Toyota gets to stay past being 26, for example. Um, there are fewer people coming through to replace them. And I think with the changing in the crowds as well, there is absolutely a sense that this moment is not going to last forever and that they are at the peak of a bubble. 
And AJW decides that it's time to do something absolutely huge and to test out this shiny, not new at this point, but recent venue, the Tokyo Dome. It's time to do something huge. And thus we get to Big Egg Wrestling Universe. It's announced uh, It's announced quite a bit earlier because that's how you get 32,500 people into a baseball stadium for a wrestling show. Well, I, I was going to say this. Am I right in saying it's 32,500 paid? There's actually mm. like 40,000 people there. Do you know what? I'm not exactly sure what the I numbers are on the, on the comp tickets. But I read 32,500 paid. So I think they gave, I think, you know, they done a Scottish Claymore and gave all the schools. <laughs> free tickets yeah. and stuff like that yeah, absolutely because yeah they might have done. I, I, I thought uh, so I, d- I don't have the I, I don't have those numbers in front of me but what I can say is that on the 20th of November 1994 people collectively drew a gate of four million dollars we're talking six hundred and twelve thousand dollars just made on program sales on top of that you know over a million dollars just on merch. I, I would say as well, right? Just just to kind of add this in as well. You're making about the amount of money they made off program sales. Programs don't usually make money. They're usually a loss leader. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't think there's a football club going that makes any sort of reasonable money out of a program from top level to lower level. It is like you don't make that much money off of it. So to make that sort of money. I bet there was some serious like photo book level photography that went into that yeah, went into some of these programs as well. If you look well. at the um, what we're going to uh, cover in episode two, if you look at the footage of the people going into the uh, stadium and buying their merch, the program does look fucking swish. Yeah, but that's the kind of money that we're talking about. So people are buying these things in their droves, and what we do know is that however many people they were. They all willingly came of their own free will to a 10-hour-long wrestling show that featured a marching band, interpromotional warfare, obscene production values, pyro everywhere, a corporate sponsor for every single individual match, and, crucially, builders being Akira Hokuto's last show before her retirement. This is the biggest thing that they could possibly have done with the industry at this time they get everybody together and say let's celebrate everything that we've achieved during the the build-up uh, uh, the build-up to this moment the last 40 years of, of joshi wrestling let's put it all together and let's just see what co- see what comes out of it and they they put together probably one of the greatest wrestling shows that's ever been, that's ever happened and yeah. it's truly spectacular to see what's going to come next yeah and so big and great in fact that uh, you know 26 years later these random british people have decided to do a podcast series about it but as for the show itself i'm afraid you're going to have to wait till episode two for us to start talking about it so thank you very much to all of those uh, of you listening to this so we hope you enjoyed big egg podcasting universe episode one before we uh, finish and let you get on with your lives for a little bit until the next uh, thrilling installment we are going to just uh, plug a few things for you so um as we've mentioned before we have a, a other podcast that we do called the per per podcast at per podcast on twitter um you can follow us on soundcloud as well and on itunes you can download our podcast there uh, please do so it's very good uh, the three of us collectively as well as lots of friends of ours also contribute to a website called i maintain the double foot stomp is silly.com that's i maintain the double foot stomp is silly.com and uh, you can follow us on twitter at 2x foot stomp we publish a lot of um 
I guess um, miscellany is probably the best way yeah. to describe yeah. it. Um, you know, serious pieces about the nature of wrestling and performance mixed in with random shit. Where I talk about uh, how would I um, how would I arrange the eleven wrestlers on the Gatto Move roster into a football team, um, and uh, every, everything else in in between. Uh, we have a lot of fun writing for the website whenever we get the chance. Uh, I've also written a novel quite recently. I published it last year called The Rise and Fall of Ricky Dozan. It's about the birth of uh, professional wrestling in Japan. Uh, the uh, men's wrestling as opposed to the women's wrestling that Sarah has so eloquently um, given us the uh, summary of here. Yeah, but... wait for the sequel when he does AJW first. <laughs> it took me four years to do this <laughs> one. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and get it down to a lean three with the sequel. But yeah, it's about the birth of professional wrestling in Japan and how this intersected with the national identity in the immediate post-war. The fact it was very much tied up with Japan versus America. It was a means by which the nation became confident that it could rebuild itself after defeating the Second World War, it's all about uh, belonging and uh, identity, and about never beating your heroes. And uh, you know, there's a bit of a bit of organised crime stuff in there. Spoilers. And uh, you know, uh, it's it's a it's a novel. It's a, it's a land of contrast, but uh, I'm very proud of it. People online seem to have really enjoyed it. So I hope that you will as well. You can buy it on Kindle for two pounds forty nine, or you can buy a print on demand paperback for fourteen pounds ninety nine. Um, and that's about it as far as books from me. Sarah, have you got anything that you would like to? Uh, the people to know about not really i mean so one thing that i did that i have done quite recently uh i'm i'm normally much better at talking about myself than this guy you've probably noticed that i like the sound of my own voice um but i recently wrote an essay um which covers some of the stuff that we have actually just talked about especially around chigsunagaya and the the female audiences for wrestling that have always been there and that no one's really appreciated um as part of an anthology called women love wrestling which is basically an entire volume of people writing about either women writing about wrestling or people writing about women's wrestling um it's fantastic book full of people far more interesting and erudite and eloquent than me um and most importantly, the proceeds from this novel, not a novel, definitely not a novel, um, the proceeds from it are all going to either rain in the USA or they're going to Women's Aid in the UK. So really worthy cause um, and some really, really exciting content in there as well. So get get yourselves over to Amazon. We'll put the links up when we so when this show comes out. Um, we'll plug that shamelessly and I will sh- I will plug that, you know, religiously until such time as I deem that Women's Aid has enough money, which is probably never going to happen. That would be a cold email to send, wouldn't it? And uh, you can also follow Sarah on Twitter at SarahParkin1 where you can get all of her takes on wrestling as well as complaints about uh, First West Yorkshire bus service. <laughs> Literally all Thing you post and it's wonderful. <laughs> it's really worrying. I've had a good few weeks on, fir- on First West Yorkshire buses, and I'm genuinely like, I have in the back of my mind that there's a bunch of people who only follow me for that content and they're just gonna lose interest. <laughs> Every in time I'm point. on a bus and it pisses me off, I do think of you, Sarah. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> do you know what? I'm just glad to be thought of. <laughs> <laughs> That's very bleak sounding. Anyway, David, what about yourself? Um, I well, um, as previously mentioned, um, I did an album called Thirteen Japanese Birds uh, under a project named Abdullah Kobayashi. It's on fastbook.bandcamp.com along with a lot of other stuff. Um, I'm starting a new podcast. It's called Draw, Lose or Draw. Um, it's the unofficial Party Festival podcast. 
To be fair, it's about time that you finally started doing a podcast about Partick instead of it also just being the entirety of your Twitter feed as well. Like it's a, it's well deserved. Yeah, and our podcast, in fairness, and yeah. I, I doubt that's, I doubt you having a podcast about football is going to stop us talking about football. On no, the absolutely not. But um, but yeah, so we, we are basically we we found it like we, we basically we have a, a secret cabal of people who sort of chat in the salons about how Ian McCall isn't doing as well as we thought but um, we thought that um, our friend Matt Greer um, he posts some stuff for another website um, and he's wanting to try and expand and do it a bit more he's wanted to do a podcast for a while um, so we want to try and just make it a bit more of a sociable listen and more fun and just kind of a bit a bit more light-hearted and um, yeah so uh, Draw Lose or Draw that's the name of the podcast at the moment um, and that will be out, you know. It's meant to be weekly. We'll see if it's weekly. Um, uh, who knows? But um, yeah, uh, that that should be good. So uh, okay, that that is is episode one is in the can. Thank you for being here for the hatching of Big Egg Podcasting Universe, and we hope you are here next time to see what we've got cooking. Yeah. Than raw and nitro were getting between them at the height of the Monday Night Wars. But it's only half what the XFL is going to get. <laughs> True, but is the XFL going to give you a pop concert? I hope so. I really hope so. <laughs> I know, he hate me could spit some bars. I think. <laughs> I think it could be absolutely incredible if the XFL does just get like it just starts getting former pop stars out of retirement and just like bringing them out it'll be the equivalent of every time they roll out the undertaker for a saudi show now you know <laughs> oh, so, don't remind me. i know i know i mean I'm after, sorry, the, guys. after the success of j-lo and shakira at the super bowl i heartily endorse this action i mean i i love j-lo shakira too but i mostly just love j-lo and what i'm saying is j-lo for you know main event of wrestlemania this year i Absolutely. think we could all get behind that um, Wait, obviously half the match should be conducted on the floor <laughs> for fuck's sake <laughs> I thank you <laughs> I, do you know what I'm, I'm proud I'm proud that I wasn't the person who made the J-Lo reference and I'm delighted that it was you um, 